Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Trailer Rewind. Every month we go back and look at a film that Pete and Andy talked about in their trailer picks from the regular show. We watch it and have a very spoilery discussion about it. Today, we're going to talk about Mr. Nobody. And this was Pete's pick from November 8th, 2013. 
we finally get to pick a Pete pick movie. <laughs> That's good. That's good. We're spreading it around. <laughs> now, he said, uh, I went back and listened. He said, this strikes him as a bit of a Benjamin Button if it was taking place with a hearty dash of string theory to it. Uh, he and Andy both commented that it had to look like a bit of sliding doors to it. I don't know if you've sure. seen sliding doors. Yes. Uh, sort of that, you know, here's a key point in somebody's life and if which way do things go if, if different options are chosen. Uh, but they mentioned that they liked how it looked very clever and how it was tracking the main character through multiple versions of his life. Yep. yep. So, I think that's pretty accurate, even yeah. if it was just from the trailer. So after watching this, I, I my first reaction was, I think that you were going to love this movie. It was like <laughs> right. It was like made for you. It, it, am, am I right? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, definitely, it's right in the sort of genre. I mean, if if people listen to the Mindbender short, it, you can get a sense that this is the kind of movie that I really sort of take a big bite out of. Um, I, I actually am. I'm really glad that we picked this one because I had rented it or borrowed it from my library um, probably about six months ago, and I had watched it with my wife. And I, to be honest, it it didn't stick with me over the course of those six months. So it was really great to revisit it and take a look at it. And I think that that kind of uh, informs a lot of what I would talk about, about uh, what makes this movie great and what kind of makes this movie dissipate in one's mind. I think that uh, I really like it and I really like where it's trying to go. I think in terms of story, it is left a little bit thin because it's really about concepts and it's really about showing concepts in a really artful way. And that's really wonderful. And it does a wonderful job of that. But unfortunately, the story is very... when you look at it objectively, you think that the story might be a little small and it's more of a canvas which for which to paint this sort of beautiful version of this concept. And while I like all that, um, I think when it holds up to my other favorite mindbender type movies, it, it ends up coming in a little bit lesser than that, even though it's totally the genre that I geek out over all the time. So um, so I think you were right to think that for me. Uh, did, did it have the same sort of resonance for you? It's interesting that you talk about story in this one because as I I just watched it earlier this week and it's been really, I've been churning it over in my head a lot because there's a lot in here. And actually I came down on the side of, I felt like there was so much story in here. I agree that it's, it, it looks like it might be not a lot if you, if you tried to pick all the pieces together, but I feel like the way that it's structured, the editing and just the, the rich use of a lot of cinematic conventions to give us editing to, to parallel things. I felt like this was like almost two films worth of story. There's just Definitely. so much packed in there. Now, the amount of time or depth that we have with each of those stories or components is, is much shorter than I think that in a typical film, but I feel like the way that the stories weave together the same locations, visual images, there's a resonance that I feel gives them more weight and gives you a little bit more, uh, I guess more heft to their, their, their presence in the story where I can start to build out sort of the missing pieces or gaps in my mind of, I think this is, this is probably how we got here. I know enough about these characters I'm seeing some images that that connect to other things I've seen that give me some little cues or hints as to how we got to that part of the story or how in his life he's there or why he's there, the choices he's made, the relationships he's in. 
Right. And you know, that makes a lot of sense that, that I should look at it in that way too, to think about that there's so much story. But I think what I would add to that is that there are so many stories that are a part of this sort of major concept. For example, if we talk about each of the ones, and you mentioned depth, I think that that might have been what I found lacking in this, in that you consider the three major, the three major turn or choices with each girl, each woman uh, going through the story, uh, and how little uh, time, how little screen time is given to the a story with Jean, right, as, as opposed to the other two. And, and maybe that's about what hangs out mostly in Nemo's mind when he's remembering the story later on. But I also think about that that kind of diluted the idea of the, the, the sort of through line, the story that is what is about this string theory and everything that's going on for it. It seemed like each of those little stories could have, there could have been so much more, two, two movies worth of stories here. But instead, because they were working on that major concept, that major through line, it ended up uh, that we lacked depth in order to show this sort of beautiful concept, which again, I, I, I like, but it, it left me feeling kind of flat. Okay, so I guess to, to really talk about this, we need to talk about this, the structure. Because we okay. can't, this isn't a typical linear narrative. Uh, there's there's a lot more going on here. So I think in terms of as we talk about story, we can talk about structure. But to step back, we've got we've got a framing story, which yep. is the story of, of of Nemo, nobody who is I think like 118 years old or something like that. He's the oldest person alive at that time because in this. Future. In 2092. 20, yeah, 2092, he, uh, technology has advanced to the point where they can basically, I believe, like regenerate their cells. So yep. he's the last person alive that has not had this process. So he's really the last mortal. So we're getting from a person at the end of a very long life, um, an interviewer comes in to talk with him, and we, we get Nemo's memories, a reflection back on his life. And as with memory, it's not always linear. We may be remembering one thing, which then keys off a point to another tangential story. But the unique piece about this is we get his life, uh, but three different versions of it. We see him married to three different women. Um, Uh, It's even more than three. It's kind of exponential beyond that because there are different choices within each of the three female choice narratives oh, yes. that yes. that he is given sort of the edge of tomorrow uh, style. I can go back and choose the left door and see how it turns out for me that way as well. Yeah, that's that's true. So we, we have the three women that he has relationships with, but more than one story with each of them. So we've got multiple narrative through lines, and none of them are told in a sequ- sequential manner. We, we're jumping about within each story and then across bridging from one to the other. Early on, his memories are very clearly blurred. We see that he's with, uh, I think, with Elise, and they've got kids, but he's calling his kids by the wrong name, and those are the names of his kids from his marriage to Jean. Right. So the what I appreciated in, in helping me track this was the use of color, because there's a strong color associated with each woman, which helps us early on, I noted, identify who we're with to sort of ground things. Anna is um, is red, Elise mm-hmm. is blue, and Jean is yellow. And those colors are always associated with them, even to the point of like the homes they're living in, the, the entire color palette is skewed toward each of those primary colors um, and those components of the story. And I keyed it on that early enough where I thought, oh, okay, 
they're giving me a lot of visual cues so I don't get disoriented, which I appreciated given the the very fragmented uh, structure that we move around throughout the film. Yeah, and I saw an IMDb note that uh, associated those colors with uh, feelings as well, considering Anna's red to be love, um, Elisa's blue to be sadness or depression, and then Jean's yellow to be a, a, a symbol of greed, which I think is interesting too. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because it's not a color we typically... Usually green, envy. Yeah. Green, yeah. Uh, green. okay. Yellow and Yellow. greed seems odd, but that, yeah. that's what they that's what they were calling out on IMDb. Which makes sense because when you look at his story that, that leads there, he's he's having a conversation with, or he's telling us, uh, you know, I'm going to live in this house and I'm going to have this kind of car. And he set these very specific goals and he's going to work really hard for those things. So it's this, this very driven sort of consumerist lifestyle to have the big fancy house and the car and the pool. And all of those things. So, yep. Yeah. Okay. I could, I could see that. One story. See, we're one woman. We spend more time with Anna. Yes. Than than any of the others. Right. Definitely, so, Anna seems to be the focal point. So that story. Um. I guess we we need to go back to sort of the the crucial point in Nemo's life, where his parents split up. He's on the train, and he's got a choice of either staying with his father or going with his mother. And Anna's story follows him if he chooses to go with his mother. Right. And so she uh, is in a relationship with the with the man whose daughter is Anna. So as Nemo's mother and this man are having a relationship, he has feelings for Anna, who is basically his stepsister. Uh, but it's this very passionate uh, relationship that they have as I think they're 15 years old. Uh, at that point, it was like it's like Clueless, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's the dramatic version of Clueless. <laughs> it is it's told in nonlinear, futuristic, in a nonlinear, futuristic yeah. fashion. But we do see that Nemo has met all these women when he's much younger, like seven or eight. At the right. point of the parents' divorce, there's a scene he's riding his bicycle, and all three of them are sitting on a bench, or at least he has a memory of this happening. They all lived on Butterfly Street. Yes, <laughs> which is inter- another. Interesting point that you bring up is the the butterfly because that's right. a key point at the beginning of Nemo's stories. He's talking about how he ended up with the family that he ended up with at the mm-hmm. beginning, um, which seems like a, a total aside when you look at the whole movie. In I guess that's kind of where I get into you know what is talking about this is the movie or this is the story of the movie. Everything that you say is contradictory. You can't have been in one place and another at the same time. Uh, You mean to say we have to make choices? Of all those lives, which one... Which one is the right one? Each of these lives is the right one. Every path is the right path. Everything could have been anything else, and it would have just as much meaning. <laughs> Tennessee Williams. You're too young for that. You can't be dead and still be here. You can't not exist. You know, you think about our uh, our talk about Comet 
or movies like this? And do we think, are we, who is our point of reference? Who, as an audience member, who am I living? Am I third person watching the story as it happens? Am I experiencing this as Nemo? And in this movie, they change that quite a bit. Um, and I don't know if, if that was a positive or a negative. I'm actually just thinking about it now for the first time, but that may have been what took me out of the sort of emotional connection with it because Nemo seemed so detached because that's the nature of his character. But that story with the angels about how the angels made him literally kind of omniscient, right? That was the story that they gave us at the beginning. Yes. Um, And then he's able to sort of review all all options, all courses of life uh, as he goes. It seems a little bit inconsistent. I don't know that I have a problem with it. I think it's it's done beautifully and it's done really creatively, but that, those are the kind of things that continually kind of pick me up in that it doesn't seem to pick a lane and say, this is our story, this is what we're going for. Well, I think that's the, the challenge of a film like this, that it expects a lot of the viewer. Yeah. To really, you know, you have to be, You. this is not a movie you can really turn away from the screen for more than 15 seconds. Uh, there's so much visually going on. Uh, and there's large stretches where it's, you know, either Nemo's association. So, we, you know, there's early on there's shots of like train tracks. There's lots of things with the pool and water and memories and visuals. It, it reminded me of, uh, I could see a lot of like Terrence Malick in this in terms of that nonlinear structure and a reliance on just powerful images to convey emotions or thoughts from the character, not so much through the dialogue. It's, it's very much a show limited telling type of, of story. So yeah, the, we do have multiple layers of narrative as well, because there's scenes early on where we're in outer space on some type of, transport space station i think we we later learned that it's going to mars much later in the film we learned that this is a story that nemo himself is writing as just a student just writing a, a little novel or short story about mars because of a story he told to uh to elise when they do you think him. so now that this that's where we start getting into sort of the mind bender and the spoilers <laughs> spoilerish things about this movie is do you think that he's writing that or do you think that he's determining that based on his abilities as a 15 year old and so he's determining that future for himself i mean that's that's what the movie like you say it it, it asks a lot of the audience and i love that um and what i try to do what i usually tend to fall on the side of is that yes he wrote it and yes he also did it at some oh. other reality in this in the course of this story and the and the the thing is we don't get enough of any section of the narrative to really give us a for lack of a better term a valid context to say it is one or the other right and it's right. It, to me this was a film where i i thought it at the end i'm going to have to watch this again to track not only uh, the different narrative threads to be able to connect the pieces of a scene. Oh, that's part of this thread. That's part of this. Thread. Now the colors tell me again, which woman he's associated with, but you know, which version of that story. And also to see the, the images like the, the butterfly, there's the leaf, you know, that, that yep. flies across comes back. that yep. comes back of what is the resonance of this? Because it, for me, it's, a film that didn't give me all the answers to all those questions, but I don't feel disappointed or unsatisfied with that because I think it just did it so well to give me enough, but not too much. 
Right. And I and and I really feel like this movie is, you know, it's it's I guess it'd probably be stereotypical to call it an art house film, but it, it really is art. And the people who made this movie were really doing it in the way to make uh, make a spectacle with a story that is a spectacle and for you to say this is what I felt in in watching this movie. And I think with that description in mind, I think it's going to be great for people who appreciate that when they go to movies. It it, it didn't do particularly well. I don't know if you've seen the the sort of uh the the notes about it, but they shot it in 2007. Um it was released in most foreign companies or countries, sorry, in uh, 2009. And then they released it in uh, in the USA in 2013, and that's why you get Pete and Andy talking about it in 2013. Yes. yes. Um, in the opening weekend in the in in the USA, it made what's reported on IMDb, and I don't think this can possibly be true, but you know, one thousand six hundred and twelve dollars on four oh. screens. So you think about it, like really thinking about it as an art film. This it, they made they made the movie for a reason, but it had a huge budget, forty seven million dollars. Wow, in two thousand seven, and it really didn't connect with people. And that I mean, I didn't hear about it, but I did see it. Uh, at the library and now like the reason why now we're talking about it because it's on Netflix now and it's a great opportunity for people who appreciate this kind of film to go and see it because I don't think there's any way anyone could have caught it when it was in the theaters oh no but this is one of those really you know a really surprising film I I looked at this and just how well this film was crafted oh yeah say how did this not find its audience earlier and I guess it's, you know, part of well, it which, comes down... Which time? <laughs> well, yeah, it not yet getting to the States until 2013, you know, there's there's plenty of films that, you know, may, may struggle or not make it here for a while due to whatever distribution. Somebody's got to be willing to, to take a bet on this and say, yeah, I think there's an American audience that's interested in this, and it, it may have taken six or seven years right. uh, for them to finally get to that point, but that it, that it hasn't. Because I think, again, this is a film that for people that are looking for something that's really compelling, that, that's really high quality in just every aspect of the visual structure and vocabulary of this film, that it, it hasn't gotten a broader fan base. And maybe maybe they're out there. They, you yeah. Know, but it's, again, well, something... It's trending you, up, too. That's one know, thing it, to notice. It, it's been on Netflix for a while, and I hope that it continues to find that, that audience. It, there's so many things that I could... that I found in this film that connected back to when I was in high school working in oh. the video store. Because yeah. there, there, was, um, there was a line that Nemo says early on uh, where he says, why am I me and not someone else? Um, yeah. And that triggered for me the movie Wings of Desire by Wim Wenders, where there's angels early on sort of wandering streets of Berlin and they can hear people's thoughts and, you know, of of young children. And this question was something that if felt like, if not the exact question was something that one of these angels overheard. And then the second thing that, that really connected back that I hadn't even anticipated, I hadn't thought of this film in years is this, this director of Mr. Nobody uh, Jaco Van Dormael uh, directed a film called Toto the Hero, which unfortunately you cannot find on DVD anywhere. But it's the story of a young boy who is convinced that he and his neighbor were switched at birth in the hospital due to some nursing mistake. And so now his 
his neighbor is living the life that he should have, which is this very well-to-do family. Yeah. And, and he himself is living with the family that this the, the other boy should have had, which is, you know, this struggling working class family. And, and the other thing that, that happens is he's, he's in love with his sister, which couldn't possibly be if it was his sister. He couldn't be in love with her like that. So clearly this is not his life. Uh, and it, it was something, it was the late 80s, early 90s. And when I saw that, that was a film that he had directed back then, I thought, I see similar, similar themes of, Wishing for a life that's not yours. Is there some, some way of, of living that other life? Uh, but it, it really touched for me that these films, seeing them at that point being, you know, 18, 19 years old when you're really trying to determine your own identity and your place in the world. And those were two films that really I connected with. So this was really almost a throwback to that of, yes, I haven't had a film that spoke to me like this in a long time of these questions of identity and life choices. And in, done in such an artfully constructed way. Well, and that thing, the the art of the of the film is just it's it's top notch. It's loaded it's loaded with camera tricks throughout that are stunning. It, the kind of stuff that you, it, without intimate knowledge of how it could possibly be done, it seems like it's impossible. And it doesn't feel like it's done with any sort of really technology tricks. That my, my one of my favorite shots is early on i think it's uh, it, it we've talked about it a little bit in when nemo is at elisa's house and he walks he gets up from bed walks into the bathroom looks at himself in the mirror and then all of a sudden the full frame the full shot becomes the mirror and that's mirrors are you know notoriously difficult to shoot with because it you see, you know, what's behind the curtain when the mirror's there. So how they did that and then how they go in with the mirror being a focus of the shot originally and then all of a sudden the mirror becoming the camera is just, it was just brilliant and stuff like that. And then there was a shot with where we go, we see a train coming by and then we we eventually the motion control of the camera goes with the train and then the train slows down and we become come on the train. There was just a lot of stuff that seemed really seamless. And there was, of course, there was technology used to make those things work, but it's just the kind of stuff where when you appreciate the art and the the spectacle of film, this movie is really going to stick out as something that they've they've really taken a lot of care with and done it in a really great way. Oh, it's it's such a, you know, I, I want, don't want to say manipulation, but it, it is because of the way the camera is going to move us through a scene to use tricks like that. Or in a lot of these memories when he's younger, looking at the depth of field where it becomes a very shallow depth of field because in a memory you, you'll remember that one thing. I'll remember, I'll remember his mother's face in such sharp detail, but everything else around out of focus to really capture what memory is like. It's those little, just little touches that I, there's such intentional, I know, detail to this that I, I, I was continually in awe of everything that I was being presented with because it was done so well. And to balance it with, again, the editing, to put together these scenes with cuts back and forth to be able for us to, to track through that, but to keep that, I guess, visual parallel that I'll, I'll talk that I, that I talked about of like the train tracks there you know there's this we're one time we're following the tracks and then there's I think we've got like a double or triple exposure of multiple train tracks and the tracks splitting off in different ways of okay 
And that's what we see. So we don't have any context of who's viewing this or what's going on, but it just feels so true and natural to what should be in this film. Yep, I agree. And and it was all, you know, we talked about this in Demolition, but everything was uh had, took care to be metaphor, right? Oh, in, yes. In, for the story in in a very artful way. So when you appreciate those kind of things, this is definitely what this movie is going to do for you. So we've got all these visuals carrying mm-hmm. us through this film. And this is I think probably because of just name recognition on most of the posters you see, you know, Jared Leto on there. Uh, right. Mr. Nobody. But he scared, he shares probably as much screen time with his 15-year-old version of yes. himself, uh, Toby Regbo. As yes. these, these two as Nemo Nobody you know, carry the vast majority of Yeah, I think it's pretty even. Film. Yeah. So it's, you know, to have that consistency of performance throughout across multiple storylines to keep us rooted in who this person is. I, I was just in, you know of these two guys being able to carry through this film as two components of the same person at different points in his life. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't know what Toby's done since this, but I, after seeing this, I, you know, it's well been quite a while looking forward to seeing him do something else because I thought yeah. there's, there's such a connection that the audience has with, with the character of Nemo. Well, he's on, he's currently on Rain. <laughs> I don't know if you watch that show on the CW. No, I don't. Uh, okay. Yeah, he's he's on Rain, and Rain is not a terrible show, but <laughs> a lot of people would consider it somewhat of schlock TV. But he is great. Um, okay. And and I and I you know my my wife watches that pretty pretty religiously. Okay. And, um, and there's good stuff there, but I think that's what he's currently doing. As far as films, I'm looking at his IMDb now because I'm not really familiar either. But the last really big thing he did, it looks like. Um, maybe Treasure Island. Oh. No, that's TV movie even. Oh, so this okay. is yeah. So yeah. So not a whole lot. Oh, he was in Deathly Hallows Part One. Oh, okay. okay. He's young, young Albus Dumbledore. Oh, uncredited. wow. Un- uncredited. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so interesting. But it, it, the fact that he's on Rain right now, he is still acting, and he it definitely will have there. There will be more stuff coming out for sure for Toby. So I mean, with with those two really carrying this film. For the for the bulk of it, the the next relationship that we spend a lot of time with is is with Anna, mm-hmm. and it's it's really younger Anna, but we do have some scenes with with older Anna, so and that's Diane Kruger and then Juno Temple as young fifteen year old um, Anna, and the the relationship between the younger versions, I felt there was a lot of that we spent a lot of time. I think the most time was was spent with them, so that relationship was really well defined. So to see the interactions later in life because of the way they are they're they're separated they they bond together and then they're separated the parents split up and you know anna sends letters to nemo they have a pact to meet at this lighthouse um she's going to come and find him there someday uh she sends letters which nemo's mother then tears up so again there's this tremendous loss that they both experience and when they come together it was a very it wasn't what I expected. Because Which time? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that I, I agree yeah. with you that yeah. uh, that it, it, most of the times it wasn't what I expected, yeah. but I thought it was totally fulfilling or what? That's the wrong word. But I was I uh, I really liked the final their final uh, coming back together when she appears in the circle that he's drawn. Oh yes, that yeah. I found totally uh, fulfilling. Yeah, I was I was totally with them on that one. So the other times I was like, what the heck? But yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I, they, they got me for the last piece. 
So to me, that's the that's the relationship I think I enjoyed the most. Maybe because we got the most time with them to really see how strongly they connected. You know, it's I, for me, it's the relationship you're rooting for. But yep. when you move into his next relationship with Elise, which, in my opinion, you can tell is going to be cursed from the start. Right. This this girl is nothing but trouble. There's this older guy that she's in love with that doesn't love her, but she's always wants his attention. Uh, you know, Nemo getting together with her. This this is not going to end well. And then as they get married, it, it is she is just not a happy person. She's definitely got the blues. She's a mess throughout. She yep. she is a, a mess throughout. And this is where I always struggle with trying to track adult Nemo and what his career is. Oh, yeah, it's super difficult because, in this movie because to figure out which Nemo is which career. Because we've got, you know, you know, we don't have we have a little bit. We've got pool care Nemo who's got the long scraggly hair. We've got yes. that. And then we've got professional Nemo who is like a host of some type of science show. Right. But I think there was another like Bill Nye Nemo. Yeah, yeah. the Bill Nye <laughs> the Bill Nye Nemo. But I I don't know Bill Nye Nemo if that's after Anna, or if that's during Elise, that's the one that I couldn't, that I wanted to go back to see if, if there's something that clue me in is too. Or if well, that's separate Nemo altogether, because he's commenting on the nature of relationship and time and space. And that's where it sort of gets lost, because I also yeah. would like to go back now. That was my second viewing that I saw last night when I watched it. But I think when he starts off as Bill Nye Nemo, he's completely uh, clean-faced. And then after we see the um, the gas explosion uh, with Elise in the car, where Elise is gone, oh, yeah. that he all of a sudden Bill Nye Nemo now has the, 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 the burn scar. Oh, yeah. So I'm wondering, I mean, so you think about all that stuff, and I think that the film purposefully mixes those stories with his career to bring us to the final sort of resting place of the story when he is 20, 2092 and laughing as oh, yeah. time, time reverses. Because yes. I think all of that stuff kind of blends in on purpose, which I, which I like. Um, you know, the con- the concept of what was Anna's theory about, about uh, how things were going to end versus what really happens, I think it, it blurs. And I think that's, that's one of the great things. It, you, you mentioned the, the Elise story. That was my favorite performance, actually, was the girl who played 15-year-old Elise. Oh, okay. I thought she was spectacular. Yeah. Uh, probably just because I believed that she was literally insane. But uh, <laughs> no, I just think she carried it really well. And, yeah. and that's not to say that the other performances were bad. I just thought that stood out to me as really believable and i really sort of bought into who she was as a character uh and what that young actress was doing yeah and then sarah polly playing the adults sort right. of you know chronic depression mom who's just overwhelmed by everything yeah so we've got those two and then yeah those were the relationships that i think we really see the most interaction with nemo his wife his, his kids um Next, you know, if we if we sort of work through his family, we get his. We see a lot of time with Anna when he's with his mom, but then we also right. have the relationship with Elise is occurring when he's with his father. Yes, and it's clear that in that version, there's something that's happened to his father, and I don't know if I blinked and missed it, or because last we saw, you know, Nemo's running on the train, you know, if and if he doesn't, then he stays with his father, who's a weatherman. But now at this point, by the time Nemo's 15, his father's got some type of illness. 
I don't think you missed it. I don't think there was sort of an incident that happened. I think it was a degenerative. I think, well, I I think the inference was that it was a degenerative condition. Right, yes. Similar to something like Alzheimer's or uh, or MS or some sort of neurological thing um, in which Nemo has to sort of not only navigate his own life, but figure out how to help his dad through it as well. Sort of, yeah, he's the caretaker for his father at this point. And that's, that's what Nemo says. He's going to the dance, and he's going to marry the marry the girl that's going to that, that asked to dance with him, and that's where we get the Gene story. Yeah, and that's the most determinist story of them all, right? So yeah. every step of Gene's story, Nemo pre-selects what he's going to do. Yes, he says that he's going to marry her when uh, before he goes to the dance, he's going to marry the first girl that dances with him, yes. and then he makes the decision: I'm going to be rich. I'm going to marry. I'm going to have this house. I'm going to have a pool. I'm going to have all this stuff. And in every piece of that story, it's him making all of the choices and leaving nothing to fate. It's an interesting sort of comment to think about the extent to which he's in control or has determined what his life is going to be in relation to the amount of happiness that he has in that relationship. Ooh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Because you think about, yeah, he's very very deterministic with Gene. With Elise, it's he's clearly making a decision to, to stay with her. Right. In this in this relationship, because at several points you're like, okay, she needs help. You need to do something, and and he he doesn't. He you know it's it's okay. I'm going to help you through this, and he's he's carrying a lot of this. You know, he's carrying the family. You know, yep. uh, he's clearly made a decision to do that with Anna. It's almost she's the in their young relationship it appears that she's the one that's that's in control yes. or is guiding that relationship a lot more. So to think about in terms of the amount of happiness he has in each of those relationships with the amount of control that he's exerting. It's sort of an yep. interesting concept. What, what brings us happiness? Right. Is it our choices or is it our acceptance of reality? Right. Oof. Oof. I like it. Okay. Heavy stuff. Uh, yeah, we can just end there. That's just end, <laughs> end uh, Just leave it right there. <laughs> well, I also do want to talk about the music. <laughs> no, um, of course. Because that was really, really great. And oh, I, yes. I actually was a really big fan of the score. Every time that the music sort of and uh, you know, I say chimed in, but that's but it, it when there was really subtle single note entrance type things. It reminded me of Donnie Darko, which I'm a huge fan of. But then also, it reminded me of like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where it was just trying to remind you of the emotion, and it was it was done really well. And I'm not familiar with Pierre Van Dormael, who is the composer, um, but uh, he's done. He it looks like he also worked on um, the other things that you mentioned, which was uh, Toto the Hero and stuff uh, okay. for Jacko. So uh, I was really impressed. Really liked the score, the soundtrack, w- the songs chosen in the soundtrack were great too. But they um, because they were using it for that sort of here are the parallel stories this is the theme and stuff and because they were songs i got a little bit tired of them uh when we got to the end and we were using them over and over again i was like oh here's the operatic piece here's the you know those kind of things but but each of the all of the music i thought was really really good and uh i was happy with how it was used in the film yeah it's it's picking songs that everyone is familiar with you've heard a lot um to to really capture the mood you know the the 15 something you know, Anna and, and Nemo that have been out on the porch, you know, smoking marijuana. You've got the, the Pixies playing as they start, you know, sort of, right. you know, making out on the kitchen table. But then you've got, you know, the younger 
Hunger Demo and you've got like, you know, lots of songs from like the 50s that it reminds me of, you know, when Marty goes back to the 50s and back to the future, you've got the <laughs> the, the idyllic, you know, neighborhood with bright colors and happy right. music. Uh, yep. But it, it just, yeah, they were familiar songs that that seemed to key in on those emotional cues appropriately. For, yep. for me yeah i thought they that. did well with that so too. It, again it's just another to me another layer of the artfulness of this film of picking that right song to communicate that right emotion or state of mind of a character uh to do that through these popular songs yep. so it's um yeah i we could probably just keep picking our way through this film <laughs> for another hour of oh because there's so many just touching points but i think we've we've really covered the bulk of, I think, the the key points that I wanted to talk about in terms of what I got out of this. Yeah, um, me too. To, to, to say it's definitely worth a film worth checking out on Netflix and viewing at least once, perhaps two, maybe even three times over, over the right. next several months. Because I, I, I think it's something that I won't tire of um, on multiple viewing. It's something that I look forward to coming back in as, as a true piece of art finding something new in it each time that I see it. I, I think that's totally accurate. And I think, you know, I, I the one warning that I would put on that is that I don't think this is a good movie to search for on Netflix if you really need a sort of spoon-fed story. If you don't want to do work as an audience member about your appreciation for it, if if if, if you feel like you need a really sort of a, a story that's set up and that's going to wrap up in the way that you want it to, this isn't necessarily the movie for you. But if you if you want to think about all the different possibilities that can be there and if that kind of art really sort of opens up for you and it's expansive and that's the kind of movie you want to watch, then this is probably a good one to just kind of to, to find on when you have an extra some extra time to look for something new and refreshing on Netflix. It's something that you, you want to sit down and talk with someone about afterwards because I like you and I are doing exactly because I'm just thinking about uh, the one scene that I I really couldn't put my head around early on when when Nemo's in Elise's house and he he goes to the mailbox and there's an envelope that slides through the door and he opens up as a picture of him with Gene and the kids and as he looks out the window he sees the mailman like traveling walking Walking back walking backwards like he's being rewound in time what does that mean I don't know. I don't. But either. I love the thought of being able to go back to this film and finding some way to attach some meaning to that. And is that when he's dreaming or when he's <laughs> hypnotized or when he's recalling his memories to the reporter? See, there's there's just so much oh, that yeah. you can go into on this movie. So if if you find that work and not fun, then don't watch this movie. But yes. if 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 you want to see something beautiful and that will pull different parts of emotion out of you at different times, I think this could be a good one for you. Okay. So, usually as we start to wrap this up, we talk about where it ended up on our flick chart. Yes. So, uh, how about, did you do it already? Oh, yeah. I, I did it already. It, it yeah, ended up in an interesting spot. So Okay. Where are you? So, it ended up at number 42 out of oh. 180. Okay. And it ended up... That's high. Oh, oh well, it's... I, I love this movie. Yes. You know, there's, there's so much about it. It ended up right below Fury... You know, okay, okay. You know, Brad Pitt, The Tanks, World War II. Yep, yep. And then it ended up just above a smaller film that I discovered on Netflix called Band of Robbers, which is a one. sort of modern retelling of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn set in a contemporary era where uh, Huck Finn is an ex-con and Tom Sawyer is a cop. It's definitely something worth worth checking out. It's, again, smaller little independent art film that is really refreshing. Uh, gotcha. So, but it's, yeah, The Mr. Nobody, number 42 out of 180. 
so for me, so mine ended up a little strange. Mine ended up lower, and I think it, for a couple of reasons. If you remember last time that we talked, we talked about Comet, and I think there are a lot of similarities between oh, yeah. Comet and this. Yes. But Comet for me was story heavy, and those yes. other things were sort of sprinkled in the sort of beauty and those kind of things. So, and I tend to default to those where Mister Nobody wasn't as heavy story wise, and all the art was up there. So, and then so that's the number one thing why it's the other direction for me. The other thing is that you've heard Andy and Pete talk about their Oh Brother block. Oh yes, on Flick, Flick Chart. My current blocker, my current first film <laughs> that everything comes up against is True Romance. Oh, so. And I, uh, so it, 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 a lot of times, unfairly, things get job pumped into the bottom things because I can't, I mean, uh, two romance is better than Mr. Nobody to me. So anyway, so it ended up for me at 62 out of 112 and where it ended up is in between two next real movies. So uh, below Snowpiercer, which you may have okay. heard oh, yeah. Andy and Pete do, which I think is a great movie and everyone should see. And above Prometheus, which I liked oh. more than the film board did. Yeah. So that's one thing about that. But the thing that I think is interesting about this range in my flick chart is that these movies are movies that I tend to wouldn't necessarily select, but I would definitely recommend to people. Like okay. uh, other movies that are in here, are like The Abyss and stuff like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I, it's not a bad spot, even though it's in my bottom half so it's not your heavy rewatch favorites but definitely solid films to recommend to someone if they haven't exactly. seen them before okay yep yep this All is right. a good one for that okay well now that we've rewound we're gonna fast forward to what's coming up on the next reel okay pete and andy have their tnr vacation challenge they're going to be talking about paranorman which was a movie with stop motion animation uh, that, i love paranorman that's uh something that uh Andy challenged Pete to find, and that's what what Pete picked, and that's one that I have not seen. But I oh, I have to go see it. Oh, I you know that studio, they're they're Leica. stuck like just yeah. I I have not seen much of their their work. It's stuff that I'm gonna have to add to my list. And then yes. Andy picked for I think it was dystopian comedy was his category. He's mm-hmm. he picked Doctor Strangelove, which and I haven't seen that. What? So. Yeah, what? See? Oh my well, gosh! Yeah, <laughs> okay. I should have said what about yeah, that? Exactly. For you? Yeah. So, so we have our own vacation challenge. We, now. I think we do. And That's then, awesome. uh, so they've got that coming up. I'm working on wrapping up another trailer or another three of a kind that I've got coming up. I talked about it at the film board. This is about uh, creativity and focusing on the head, the heart, and the hands, and those Ooh. those tools and in, in their use in uh, creative arts. So that's uh, coming up in a in a week or so, as soon as I can get that wrapped up. So, Justin, it's been a while. We uh, yes, you know, it's nice to get a chance to talk with you. We'll be back. We'll we'll be sure. back. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Good night. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. 
If you'd like to help support our efforts, try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, or The Two Faces of January. Or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. Get started today. 